If you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians as we continue this morning in our study through Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 7. from the Lord. Let's ask his blessing once more on the reading, preaching, and hearing of that word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again this morning confessing that this is your word written down expressly as you have breathed it out. Lord, and we pray that as we hear that word preached now that you would indeed bless it as it goes forth and that it would go forth in truth, and that it would do so even with the affection that you would desire to see it go forth with, and it would be received and heard in a manner worthy of you, the God who speaks and is not silent. Oh, dear Lord, give us, we pray, hearts that are ready to hear it. Help us, Lord, to bend our lives and our wills towards you. And we do indeed, Lord, pray that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For it's in Christ's name that we ask all these things. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse uh, 1, I'll read to verse 16. Uh, this, of course, is the second uh, part in this passage, the sermon in this passage uh, that we're reading through. Um, we dealt with verses 1 to 9 last week, but I'll read 1 to 16 uh, for the context. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she contents, uh, consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So far, the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it. Well, years ago, when our children were younger, uh, we made the decision to homeschool them, school them at home to take control, charge of their instruction. And I understand that not all can and not all should uh, take this course. But for those who do, there's certainly opposition that comes from concerned family members and loved ones who express those concerns in love. And really, you don't have to have made that decision to homeschool your children for this claim uh, to come, this claim lodged against you, this concern um, that you are sheltering your children. Have you heard this uh, as you have uh, sought to to protect and care for your children? Um, And as parents, we care about the influences and the exposure our children have to things. And people do say, you're sheltering your children in a negative way, as if it's a negative thing. And I had a friend of mine who used to respond to this concern and this claim by saying, yes, I am, and I'm also feeding and clothing them, right? And that's right, that's correct, right? That's what was our call as as parents. We are to care and provide for our children. And we saw last week that our Heavenly Father is a father who cares and who provides for his children whom he loves, And we continue as we look at this passage this morning, uh, and we see that Paul shows us God's great sovereignty once again. He shows us his provision for his people, his provision for his people. And we saw in those first nine verses, his provision and his protection. And then we saw also his provision for passion, the passions that men and women have. And then this morning we see first in verses 10 through 11, his provision in providence his provision in providence. And he says again there in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Right, and so there was was a complex uh, interplay of issues going on here in Corinth. Right, and imagine, think of some at Corinth who were married with this history as we've, seen, as we've seen in the past with perhaps mistresses, perhaps with other uh, adultery, perhaps engaged uh, likely with temple prostitutes. Imagine some at Corinth who are married with this history of gross, habituated sexual immorality. And imagine these, uh, believe, those who have come out of this and they're believers with this past. And they're tempted in the opposite direction of what they've known for so long. And what they practiced. Who are they now? Now they are saved. They belong to Jesus. And that old way of immorality disturbs them. right? And in fact, it may horrify them. And upon hearing Paul telling them that marital relations were a duty within the context of marriage. right? So what Paul has just got done telling them. They're wanting to go the way of asceticism. right? Of absolute abstinence. And to leave their spouse because of this. That's the situation. Paul says what? He says, don't separate them. Don't leave them. There are two words here used in verses 10 and 11. 
uh, for, for this. The first word in verse 10 uh, is used and it means to separate, to depart. Right? It's the word in the New Testament in Matthew 19 and the parallel passage in Mark 10 uh, where uh, Genesis 2 is being quoted. And it says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, separate. Right? That's the word that's being used in verse 10. I give this charge, the woman should not separate from her husband. Or in Acts 18, at the beginning of that chapter, we read of Paul. It says Paul left Athens. It's the same word. And then it says Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Or in Romans 8, Paul tells us, or asks the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the word that's being used in verse 10. And then verse 11, there's another word that's used. The husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, it means to send away, to release, to remit. And we see this word used by Jesus himself in his promise in John 14, verse 18, where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Or in Gen- uh, Revelation verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned, you have left, you have uh, been sent away from that first love. And so those are the two words that we see here in verses 10 and 11 that we have for divorce or to separate. But the point here that Paul is making is that divorce is not an option for those wanting to escape their marital obligation. Nor is it an option to separate in order to go with someone that they desire more. They are to stay together or separate and remain unmarried or reconcile with their spouses. And you see, this is where Paul says, not I, but the Lord, right? You see that in in verse, excuse me, in verse 10, he says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Um, What's that referring to? I wonder if you've ever uh, thought yourself what that was. Not I, but the Lord. Paul here is referring to the teachings of Christ, right? We see these references to the teaching and the command of Christ in other places Uh, In our New Testaments, we see it in places like 1 Corinthians 9, two chapters ahead from where we are now, uh, where he says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel, right? The Lord commanded. So it's referring to this teaching of the Lord. Uh, Or in 1 Thessalonians, we read, For I declare to you by a word from the Lord, right? These are references to the same, similarly to the same thing Paul is doing here in verse 10 and so you know we think about this and we realize the gospels haven't been written yet when paul sends this letter to the to the corinthians the gospels have not yet been written down and so paul is referring to what he's referring to a collection of christ's teachings that had been memorized and passed down from person to person and they're well known christ's teachings do not of course I'm sorry, they do, certainly, in the course of time, in God's sovereignty, they do get inscripturated and written down for our protection. Uh, And so we do see this in time. And indeed, in Mark 10, Jesus himself refers to some of these provisions, right, in regards to marriage and divorce. And he refers to the Old Testament provision of divorce from Deuteronomy chapter 24, Um, And again, our passage here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not an exhaustive treatment of all of these things, of marriage and divorce. There is a context to the passage that we're in. There are more on these matters come to us from different places in Scripture. When we look at uh, these issues, 
We don't want to take the whole counsel of the word of God, right? We look at places like Matthew 5 where Christ, uh, we read of Christ permitting divorce in cases of what? In cases of adultery or in cases of desertion, Paul speaks of in just a few verses from where we are now. But again, as I said, with any topic or teaching, we must look at the whole counsel of God and see what it brings to bear on a topic. And so what specifically here is Paul addressing? Right, again, he's responding, you'll remember, from a, to a particular question asked of him in a letter that comes to him. Apparently some at the church of Corinth were thinking that it would be best to remain celibate and to keep the body from being defiled. Possibly an overreaction from the context that they're coming out of. And therefore the thinking was what? It was that for some it was to divorce their spouse and to remain celibate rather than to continue in those marital relationships, those marital relations. And so Paul isn't dealing here with adultery or with desertion. What he's trying to do is correct the thinking and the actions of people getting divorced, separating because they viewed the body as bad or evil. Right? That's that dualistic thinking that they had. It, the body is bad, and they want to remain celibate, therefore. And so we think about this, and th- we think about these situations. And these situations, mostly, in our context, are not driven by an overt dualism, an overt pagan worldview, or a proto-Gnosticism, like it was in their context. But it is certainly true that sexual sins and damage carry real shame and guilt and destructive ongoing problems for people. And why is this? It's because Paul has already told us, we just read in the previous chapter, regarding these sins, sins against the body. We know that they are very complex and these are very difficult issues. But though that be true, brothers and sisters, for those who struggle with these things, for those, for the one who has the guilt, this guilt and shame and all the rest of it, you must know, dear believer, that wounds can heal, right? Health can come. Renewed lives, monogamous, marital intimacy can happen again, if not for the first time. Your sins, our sins, don't shock the Lord. We must realize this. They don't shock our Father. He is greater than our sins. He is cleaner than our dirtiness. And with Him there is hope and life and refreshing cleansing. Our sins we have to acknowledge and we have to know and we have to believe. It can't be feared more than our forgiveness is believed. Right? Our sins can't be feared more than our forgiveness. The freedom from faith is greater than the fear of our fallenness. Why? Because in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ. And so in verse 10, he has said, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, as we move on, he says, I, not the Lord. What is he talking about there? What's going on? Is, 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 is this verse, is this text that we read setting Paul in opposition to Jesus? That is what some say. They'll say that, well, let's say, see right there, Paul and Christ, they taught different things. They're contradictory. Right? This is what the non-believer says. This is what critics say. But it's not true. Right? The words that we have here from Paul are not no less authoritative than the words of Jesus, nor are they contradictory to what Jesus has taught. Paul simply means what? He means that Jesus didn't speak specifically to these issues during his earthly ministry. 
In verse 12, Paul also isn't undercutting his apostolic authority, which is something else that is claimed of these verses. He is simply what? He is clarifying. He is operating out of his apostolic authority. And again, that will never be in opposition to Christ's teaching, but it will be aligned with the rest of Holy Scripture. Why is that? How is that so? It's because it's the word of God, right? It's the word of Christ. And so how does God provide? How does he give provision for his people, for his children? He does so in his providential ordering of the context of our salvation. And he gives us instruction through that. And then in verses 12 to 16, we see God does so in the positions in which he places us. The positions in which he places us. Because of God's work in bringing people to faith and giving them life and calling them to himself from the pagan world, Paul needed to deal with cases like this. Cases that came from that reality. Particularly here, instances where one spouse is saved, he becomes a Christian, the other spouse does not. He does not convert to the faith. And so you have a believer and an unbeliever. As the gospel spread, this had to be addressed as people are drawn by the Spirit to Christ. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul addresses this issue. And the question has to come. Right? Long before the clash asked the question in the 1980s, it came to the church, right? Should I stay or should I go? Do I stay with my husband? Do I stay with my wife or do I leave? And this also was part of God's providence. Right? Paul clearly forbids the believer from joining themselves to a non-believer in 2 Corinthians, right? His next letter, he strictly forbids this. But here the situation is different. The situation he's addressing now is regarding one who is already married. And he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so in their day and in ours, Paul says, You were married before you came to Christ? You are to remain married to that spouse who is still an unbeliever. You are not free to divorce your spouse because they are not a believer. Right? The union is what? It is holy. How is that so, Paul? How is it a holy union and why is it a holy union? In verse 14, he says this. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And so we need to take a moment to reflect upon and remember what this means to be holy. There are a number of different ways that Scripture uses this word. But at its core, the word means set apart. It means consecrated. It means dedicated to the service of God. Holy given over to, set apart. Believers are not to leave their unbelieving spouse. This doesn't mean, therefore, that, or however, that, that they're in an invalid marriage. And it doesn't mean that their children are, therefore, unholy and barred from membership in the covenant. No. Rather, in verse 14, it says, but as it is, the children are holy. Right? Holy. Not in the medieval sense of the saints, like some of us, many of us have thought at some time or another. Because what? According to God's word, it says what? That 
All believers are saints, right? The word saints is derived from a word that means holy. It's set apart. The holy ones, the set apart ones. And also Christians are being made increasingly holy over time by the Holy Spirit. They call that sanctification. Again, the word sanctification and saint, they're related, right? They're related terms. And so God has called believers and their children out of the world to be set apart from the world. God has plucked them from the fire for his own sovereign purposes. And this also includes those who are married to unbelievers, right? There's this uh, contagious holiness, as you, if, as you were, uh, by virtue of the fact that they have been set apart for God's own providential purposes, this status, that holiness, that set-apartness, it also extends to the unbelieving spouse. And Paul goes on to say that that status, that position, it extends also to the children. <coughs> Paul says that if this were not the case, then the children would be unclean. But as it, are they, as it is, they are holy. Children of these marriages are regarded as holy. Right? If you've ever witnessed a baptism here in Providence, uh, you'll have heard this before. We're speaking of positionally holy, positionally set apart. And therefore they are set apart for God's purposes, set apart and part of the covenant community, the family of the Lord. And that's why, for instance, those in the Presbyterian branch, those in the Reformed branch of the Christian church, Right? Those in the reformed branch of the Christian family tree, they give children the sign of the covenant. Are they holy positionally? Are the children holy? Are they positionally set apart? Yes, definitely they are. This is not speaking of holy in the moral sense. It's not speaking of moral purity. It's speaking of being positionally holy and set apart. And so that status of holiness that being set apart is not nullified because one parent is a non-believer. We think about that as parents for our children or as children uh, ourselves. Right? What, what, what a provision of our great God regarding who we are positionally and how this would affect how we raise our children and how our children uh, respond to these realities. Our children are positionally holy. What a difference this understanding makes to the way that our children are reared Indeed. But we look at this and we go on and we see that God provides instruction to those who are in a marriage with an unbelieving spouse. They're in this marriage with an unbelieving spouse and that unbeliever decides to leave the Christian because they are a Christian. And Paul gives the the instruction in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. But what? He says, God has called you to peace. For do you know, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And we see here that God is definitive. If the unbeliever is determined and decides to leave the Christian spouses to let them go, the Christian isn't bound to them any longer. The spouse who has been deserted is free to remarry when this happens. Why? It's because Paul tells us God has called you to peace. Elsewhere, as much as it depends on you, you are to live at peace with everyone. The Christian isn't to seek to dissolve that relationship. But because peace is the goal, if the non-believing spouse does not want to leave, the Christian is to remain in the marriage for peace, the sake of peace. But when that non-Christian deserts the believing spouse, 
because they're a Christian, the Christian spouse is to maintain the peace by letting them go. They're not bound any longer. And then we come to verse 16. How are we to understand this verse? Verse 16 can be uh, confusing and difficult to interpret. Uh, There are a number of ways that this verse can and has been interpreted. Um, Some have said that the meaning of this verse is that Christians should cling to their marriage for as long as possible at all costs, even being an evangelistic marriage. And they should do do so even if there is antagonism or no reception at all to the gospel. But does that seem to fit the context of what Paul has been saying? Right? God's called you to peace. Is that, it doesn't seem to fit what Paul has already instructed them. He's already said that believers are not to try to cling to marriages, to the marriages that the unbelieving party is trying to end. And he's called you to peace. And so we look at all these things. We look at all these, uh, these issues that Paul is trying to delineate and correct for them. We think of all this and we see the poles, right? Those poles of the pagan worldview that we've talked about the last number of weeks, the pagan way of thinking, we see that it truly cannot deal with all of these issues. It cannot deal with the goodness of human intimacy, marital relations, as well as the corruption of that intimacy. It is the explanatory power of the Christian worldview alone that can do this, even as it is the only the Christian worldview that can explain how man can be so noble and honorable and, and, and to show self, a sacrificial love and the other pole of being so wicked and wretched and evil. We have a way to account for these realities. Right? God created things good. It's a good creation as created. Man is created in the image of God. But we also have the fall to explain these things on the other pole. The Christian worldview alone explains the realities regarding intimacy, that it is ordained by God for good according to his plan and his context that he ordains it in, and that is marriage. And because we have been told in God's word of that fall of man and the corruption of his creation, we can make sense of the degradation and the misuse of intimacy and the resultant shame of that misuse. God has graciously provided for we, his people, brothers and sisters. And for us, dear Christian, it is the word, not the world, that gets to dictate how things are. Regardless of how the world feels about it, regardless of how we feel about these things, God gets to say, and we know that God is good, and he is merciful, and he is faithful, and he is all-knowing, and he is gracious to his people. He provides for them. And so let us delight and rejoice in our King and our Redeemer, brothers and sisters. Let us give praise for his care and his love. For we know and we rejoice, right? What? That, That the institution of marriage, marriage is a picture. It is to be a picture. It is to reflect the truth that the Lord has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has justified us and he will glorify us. Our marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus and his church. We, his body, are his bride. And we know from Ephesians 5 that we've looked at again and again that he has and he is washing us with his word. He is purifying his bride. And he will one day call us to that great marriage feast of the Lamb. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul models for us how we, how we are to view our lives, all of our lives, indeed all of reality, 
It's not with the lenses of the world. It's not with the lenses through the worldview of our culture or our former way of life. No, brothers and sisters, we are to view our lives, even our marriages and intimacy and singleness and celibacy. We are to view it all through the lens of creation and redemption. So regardless of your situation, your station in life, you go from here back into the world, back into the world of which you are, st- of which you are strangers and aliens, and you go back with the lenses of God's word renewed in that understanding. It is by that word that we get our brainwashed brains washed, as one man would put it. Right? Our, our brains are, we are continually being inundated by the world and our own flesh. And it's by God's word that we get corrected and we get washed. And so let us go viewing life rightly and knowing that the God who created us, male and female, is the same God who bought us with a price. And go knowing that ultimately all of his provision, all of his provision, indeed our chief end, is to glorify him even in our bodies. It is only when we see life through these lenses, the lenses of God's word and our union with Christ, that regardless of your situation, that you will have the contentment and the satisfaction that truly satisfies. And so go, dear Christian, go with zeal and praise and resolve through the Holy Spirit. And when the world to whom you are a stranger asks, you tell them the reason for the hope that you have. And may you do do so evermore praising our great and mighty, merciful King for all of our days, even unto glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty and loving God, we come again before you. We give you thanks and praise for revealing yourself to us in your word. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for Christ's perfection given to us. We praise you, Lord. We thank you that our lives are in your hands. We ask, Father, continue to draw us near. Continue to increase our faith, Lord. Continue to lead us to surrender and submit to your word and your will. We ask, dear Lord, to strengthen, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, even as you provide for us and sustain us, Lord, week and day by day. Even this morning, Father, we pray as we partake of the supper, may we receive by faith and be fed and strengthened. Lord, we pray for your people. Whatever hardships that we might endure in this life, we pray that we would indeed see you, that you are God and King, and that you are a gracious and good God and King, and that you are uh, faithful to us and that you love us with a perfect love. Lord, we come before you again and we pray for our unbelieving loved ones, those whom uh, we, we care deeply about, Lord. We pray that you would indeed work in their hearts to draw them to the Savior, that they would have life and that we could have fellowship with them. Father, we pray for the growth of your church, particularly our church, this outpost of the kingdom of heaven, we ask, Father, that you would give us a boldness as we invite others to come and to hear the gospel and to be loved and be confronted with that gospel, that they would have life and that they would welcome them with the love of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all these things and we pray for the spiritual growth and the blessing of this congregation, for the continued spirit of love and unity, Lord. We thank you 
so much for these things. Father, we pray for, particularly in this body, we pray for the Bell family. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would, that you would uh, be with Doug as he seeks to, to, to bless you and to honor you and to follow you. We pray that you would give him faithfulness to you in all things with all of his life. Lord, we, we join him, uh, we join with him in giving you uh, praise and thanks. Father, we pray for the Byler family as well. We pray that you would continue to grow them, to strengthen them, to draw, to draw them and lead them in truth and in grace. Lord, we pray that you would give them uh, help, assist them, Lord, as they seek to rear their children in the nurture and the culture uh, uh, of our Savior, Lord, and that they would be consistent uh, not only in family worship, but uh, just in, the, in, in the, the warp and move of their life, Lord. We pray that you bless them, pour your spirit out upon them, and give them strength as they do so. Father, we pray as well for the Copland family. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for uh, the girls as they are uh, at college, Esther and Edith. We pray that you would bless them, that you would give them hearts to seek to serve you and learn uh, for the purpose of your glory as well. And we pray this for Ethan as well and all of his studies. Lord, we pray that you would give him a... Uh, a strong mind and a resolve in his studies that he would uh, serve you and that he would glorify you even with his studies. Lord, we praise you that you renew them and that you strengthen them and that you provide for them as well. Uh, Lord, we bring before you as well the greater church, the missionaries, uh, that we, uh, uh, the, the presbytery rather. Lord, we pray for Christ the King Church in Hastings uh, and Pastor Adams. Um, we pray that you would bless him and his ministry there. We pray that you would uh, bless his wife as well as she seeks to assist him. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring them new family members and grow them as they seek to reach out to that community. We pray again, Lord, as well for the church in Bad Acts, the First Presbyterian Church, and we praise that you, that you have brought uh, Pastor McDermott there to that church to be their pastor and to serve you and to serve that congregation. Father, we pray, uh, praise you that he has transitioned smoothly to this uh, to this new post in this new state even, Lord. And we pray as they seek to grow and for their study groups, we pray that they would uh, indeed do that, grow in depth and in number and all for your glory. Father, we pray that you would indeed be merciful to us, that you would provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us, we pray, Lord, spiritually. Increase our faith, Father. Help us to know who we are in Christ and help our lives to reflect that reality. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we can come boldly before you as your children. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.